Well, good morning, Redeemer. I hope everyone had a glorious Thanksgiving. Yes, I heard a yes. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses specifically 31 and 32 as we continue to define Israel. What is Israel? Who is Israel? But before we do that, let us seek the the face and the grace of our Lord. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony, giving wisdom to the unlearned, and enlightening the eyes, we humbly implore you through your boundless goodness to enlighten our blind intellect by your Holy Spirit so that we may truly understand and profess your law and live according to it. Since it has pleased you, most merciful Father, to reveal the mysteries of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him alone, who is of a humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is enmity against you. Bring to the right way those who stray from the truth, so that we all may unanimously serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. We ask you this Uh, We ask this from you, most merciful Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and amen. Amen. What is Israel? Now, a few weeks ago, I did a sermon, and I began this series, and I talked about the fact that Israel is Jesus. Biblical Israel is not an ethnic tribe. It's it's not a land in, in the current geopolitical situation. It is a person. Now, and, and now what I'm going to do is go on and say that Israel is a kingdom. And I know that some of you are going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it was a guy. <laughs> but, but in truth, we, what we have to do is think about this in a somewhat more complex way. In, in Genesis, was Israel a man or was he a nation? Well, at first he was a man. And then he became a nation. So when I say that Jesus is Israel, do I mean the man or do I mean the nation? Or do I mean both? So if, if we, the church, are Israel, we are only Israel because we are connected to the, we are the body of the head of the church. Right? He's the king. He is Israel, and so we are Israel. And, and what we're doing here is thinking about this not in the Greek, modern, scientific way, but in the poetic, Hebraic way. Now, what I mean by that, this is something Jared and I used to talk more about. I think we should resurrect this conversation is the Greek way of thinking wants to strip everything down to its essence. We, it, it's, it's Aristotelian, it's Platonic. We want to know the essence of the thing. Don't confuse me with a bunch of information. Boil this baby down to its bones and let me look at it under a microscope. That's, that's the modern way of thinking. That's the Greek way of thinking. The Hebraic way of thinking is tell me more. Tell me what it's like. What is it like? What is it like? And this is how Jesus is. He, he just says in his parables, there's three sets of parables. He says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like virgins with, with lamps. That's really confusing. The, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like that. The kingdom is... And he goes on. He, he tells all these stories about what the kingdom is. Well, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is all of those things. And so here, when we move now from Israel is Jesus... Now we're going to say Israel is a king and a kingdom. What we're doing is adding, adding to our understanding, adding to our definition. Proof texting is very dangerous. Proof testing can be very helpful. Word searches can be very helpful. But you're not going to learn everything about covenants by simply looking up the word covenant. You'll learn a lot, but not everything. 
Now, that being said, the other thing when we are for something, we have to understand that we're naturally then, therefore, against something, right? And in the modern world, they want you to be for everything and against nothing, unless it's Christianity. But what we, when we are for something, it means we are also opposed to something. And what we are opposed to in this sermon series is addressing as a community is a system of theology called dispensationalism. Now, I'm going to explain that, but what I find is that there are lots of people who are dispensationalists who have never heard the word. Uh, it's a lot like Luther being called a Hussite, even though he had never heard of John Hus ever in his life. And then once he went and read his books, he said, yes, of course I am. I once gave a man a book on dispensationalism, trying to argue, get him to stop being a dispensationalist, and all it did was teach him all the ways to argue for dispensationalism. I no longer give out that book. <laughs> but dispensationalism is a theological system that divides the history of redemption and thus the Bible into separate periods, separate dispensations, in which God relates to his people uniquely in each dispensation. No dis- two dispensations are the same. They're dis- disconnected. There's no continuity between them. Now, this method divides up the people of God. It divides up the Bible. It, it, it even, to taken to an extreme, divides up God himself. Because the, the ultimate fruit of a dispensationalist is that God, the God of the Old Testament or the God of this particular dispensation over here is not the same as the God of the New Testament. And dispensationalist theologians actually talk about the fact that the father in the Old Testament was this nasty, mean, rule, like he was all about rules, he was all about obedience, and, and Jesus came along and he's a nicer, kinder, softer, gentler God. And, and, and there's this God and this God, and they're not the same. This is the ultimate fruit of this system of thinking. Now, it's contrary to the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself, who understood that he himself was the embodiment of the unity and continuity of the entire Bible. So anybody who wants to come along and tell you that covenant is is the continuity or kingdom is the continuity, all of those themes help us understand the whole counsel of God, but the continuity of the Bible is Jesus himself. The Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he goes to the very beginning. Moses, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he works his entire way through as they're walking to Emmaus, and he explains how all of it is about himself. And and this is where people get very distracted. They they become covenant heavy. They become kingdom heavy. They become temple heavy. But, But he is the high priest of the temple. He is the mediator of the covenant. He is the king of the kingdom, okay? It's all about Jesus. Now, dispensationalism was first developed by an Englishman named John Nelson Darby in the 19th century, okay? This is how new this system of thinking is. It was made popular in the United States through something called the Schofield Reference Bible. Now, I grew up in a home. My parents were sort of lukewarm evangelicals, and they both had given each other Schofield reference Bibles. So I know this Bible, and I used to look it up, and I want to understand things, and, and, and you look up the references. It's a very nefarious book for this reason, because what he does is he connects verses all over the Bible that teach this horrible system, right? He takes all these verses out of context. He doesn't talk about what the, what the scriptures are actually teaching at the time and place of the person who wrote them. What he does is he, he takes it, and he puts this system of dispensationalism on top of the scriptures, And this is how the system became popular. This is how it remains in the minds of many Christians, even though they've never heard of the Schofield Reference Bible or dispensationalism. Now, 
There are various dispensational schemes. The most prevalent divides world history into seven eras or dispensations, including the historical parenthesis of the present church. The present church isn't, has nothing to do with fruition, has nothing to do with culmination, has to do with an aside. The church is just sort of this, well, we will let the Gentiles play with God for a little while, <laughs> and then the Jews will take everything back from them. Thank you for holding on, it on to, to it for us. Okay? In this system, the present age will steadily deteriorate until the secret rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, and the establishment of God's kingdom. Included in this is the strict division between Israel and the church. You can see in what I just described popular doctrines amongst people who, even, who are sitting here with us today. Okay? And so people believe these things, the fruit of dispensationalism, and do not understand where they came from. Dispensationalism differs from covenant theology by identifying two separate people, Israel and the church, to whom God relates in very distinct and unique ways with no unity between the two. And this results in greater discontinuity in the biblical story than is affirmed in either the Reformed tradition or the theological tradition of the church throughout history. This is not how Augustine understood it, Anselm, um, Ratramus of Corbet, he would have not understood at all this concept of dispensationalism. It's a very modern invention. It's a modern novelty. Now, we aren't in the PCUS. In fact, the Presbyterian Church of the United States is now broken into four denominations. But in 1944, they actually had a synod, and they declared dispensationalism out of accord with the Bible and with the creeds and confessions of the church. Okay, so that all being said, okay, Mike, enough of what you're opposed to. What are you for? What are you for? What we are highlighting in this series is the continuity of the Old and New Testament and addressing the fruit of dispensationalism even amongst those who don't consciously affirm the foundational tenets. You can sit there and say... I do not believe in dispensationalism, and that's fine, but a lot of the doctrines that you hold to are the fruit of dispensationalism, which is why we've got to address it. Okay, the apostles' understanding of the church arises from and is built upon <clears throat> the Old Testament revelations of Israel. They understood the church as being the new Israel. When they talk about the, the body of Christ, they talk about the bride of Christ, they talk about the ecclesia, this is all comes from the way that the prophets and Moses and, and, and the Old Testament talked about the people of God. Okay, Paul and John and Peter did not sit down and say, okay, listen, we have to make the church, we have to be able to explain it to everyone. So let's sit down and let's think of some ways, some metaphors, some poetic ideas that make it really clear to everyone what the church is. That's not what they did. What they did is they had their Greek Old Testaments and their Hebrew Old Testaments, mostly Greek, and they read them. And they understood that this people that Jesus is gathering around himself is the same as these people who were gathered around Moses, who were gathered around David. And they use the same <coughs> types, they use the same po poetic devices to explain the bride of Christ, the people of God, the church, as the Old Testament prophets did of the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is not a stopgap. As dispensationalism argues between the failed kingdom of Israel and the re who rejected Jesus in the future millennial reign of Jesus over a restored ethnic Jewish state. We're not just uh, parentheses. Okay, Jesus is the point of all the Old Testament types and shadows. Jesus is the fruit of 42 generations of Israel who receives and fulfills the calling of Israel in himself, as we learn from the Gospel of Matthew and from Romans. Now, the calling is not different at different times in history, and this is what I mean. 
In Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, when the kingdom of Israel is first established, God declares through Moses this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, if we turn to 1 Peter, if we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what we read beginning in verse 4. Now you tell me if this sounds like the apostle is speaking in exactly the same manner as Moses. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But they are a chosen but you, I'm sorry, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, that's a long section, but what is he saying? He's saying there were those who, who possessed the kingdom, who rejected the kingdom, and they've been replaced now by people who, who did what? Accepted the stone. Those who have accepted Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus, those who looked at Jesus for their salvation are a priesthood, a royal nation. They are Israel. The calling of Israel is the same, whether it's Moses who's giving it to us or Peter who's giving it to us. Faith, not flesh, determines the kingdom of God. Redemption is not about merely about personal salvation, and we have to stop talking about it like that. It's not just about you and, and your quibbles with God and, and the wrath that may or may not be coming upon you and what you did and didn't do personally. That's not what the gospel is ultimately about. It's about citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. It's about a whole way of life. It's about understanding who you were, who you are, and who you will be because of him. Because of him. Not because of you. Not because of who your dad was. Not because of who your mom was. Not because of who, what your mom or dad may or may not believe. If you look to him, you will be saved. If you look to him, you are a citizen in his, uh, you're a member of his household. You are a citizen in his kingdom. Now, to just clarify again this idea about dispensationalism, okay, and the fact that the Old Testament prophets had no notion of this, we turn to Malachi chapter 4, right before the end, right? We're standing on the edge of the Old Testament, looking across the 400-year gap to the coming of the Gospels, the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of the fulfillment of the promises. We're standing on the edge with nothing but failure behind us, and Malachi is going to describe what he sees. He's a visionary. This is what prophets are. He's looking across the span of time, and he's going, what he's going to do is describe the future using nothing but types and shadows from the past. 
In chapter 4, we begin in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There will come a new era, there will come a new day where the son of righteousness will arise, one like Elijah will go before him, he will tread down the head of the serpent, and and, and those who reject him, there will be a decree of utter destruction. And that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. That's exactly what happened. They rejected him and they were tread under the Lord's feet, just like all of the nations who do not believe in Jesus. Now, you see, right? Now, I thought there was going to come a son, a promised son, who himself would tread down the serpent. But what he says is to those who believe in Jesus, we will tread down the serpents. Right? Because why? We're a nation of priests. We are a nation of kings. We are a nation of prophets. We go into the world and we confess sin. We forgive sin. We address the devil and his works. And what we do is everything we lay our hand to, we are treading down the enemy. His kingdom is coming on earth through his people. There is so much here that I could just carry on, but my goodness gracious, I have far more to get to. But what you see here is is this Malachi who comes at the end of the story is using types and shadows from the entire Old Testament to describe the coming Messiah. It's not like, well, you know, Moses had his thing going on, but that's forget all about that. Adam had his thing going on, and there was this snake, but yeah, yeah, forget all that. Oh, there was this other dude named Elijah, but no, no, no. No, he says there's one coming, and he takes the entire story and condenses it down (laughs) into a couple of paragraphs and says this is the hope that we are looking for. And now we get a little closer to what I, the verses I actually said we're going to talk about. But if we go to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, we go to verse 76. Now, Jesus himself in Matthew 17, 12 said that John the Baptist was the Elijah that everyone was waiting for. So that part's fulfilled. And what did John the Baptist say, what John the Baptist's father say about John the Baptist? He had in mind what? Malachi, when he said these words. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John, boy, you are the Elijah that we are waiting for. You are going to go out and tell everyone the way of the Lord. You are going to prepare the way. The one who comes after you will be greater than you. The one who comes after you will save us. The one who comes after you is the son of righteousness that we are waiting for. Right? It's, and and he's, it's here now. He's not saying, well, you're the Elijah. 
And Jesus is going to do his thing, and then there's going to be this long period of time, and then he's going to, on his second advent, bring the kingdom. He's saying, no, the son of righteousness has risen now, and there is mercy in his wings, and there is healing in his wings, and this time that we are waiting for is here. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is not something that we're waiting for. When you went down into the water, or when the water was poured over your head, whichever happened, right? When you went through the waters of baptism, you went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You are not waiting for a kingdom that is not yet here. You put on the kingdom in your baptism because you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I am with the great theologians and pastors throughout history. One of the most difficult things to do is to get people to believe not just who Jesus is, but who they are in relation to him. There is not some other chosen kingdom. There are not some other people who are special to him, and you poor schmucks are just trying to work your way in, somehow make it in. You are the chosen ones. You are the kingdom of priests. You are a nation of kings and priests and prophets. So Jesus was the true Israel of God, but that is not all. We turn from from Matthew 2.15, which we looked at before, where Jesus is called out of Egypt to fulfill the calling of Israel. We look now to Luke 1.31-33, where we are told that Jesus inherits David's throne over the household of Jacob to reign creation forever. That's what we're going to look at today. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. You tell me that we're still waiting for a king to come. Uh, chapter 1 of Luke, verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word is grace. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The king of Israel has come. He has established his kingdom. Who are his subjects? Who? People who out there who don't know his name? Or, or you who say, no, this is the Lord Jesus Christ in whom I believe, and therefore I am his subjects, and we are the kingdom of God. We, we want to make, we have this romantic idea, we have this, this problem with self-esteem, I don't know what it is, but we want this to be true about somebody else and not about ourselves. I'm going to explain these three things. The Son of the Most High the throne of his father David, and what it means to reign over uh, the house of Jacob forever. There's there's no end. There's no end to the size or the longevity of, of Christ's kingdom. And they're not talking about something that will happen. They're talking about something that's happening right then as the baby is being conceived in the womb. Now, Paul teaches that the Son of God Jesus is the true Israel who fulfills the Old Testament promises. This is what we looked at in Romans. Israel was the son of God. Israel became a corporate Adam. We, we, if, if we go back now, go with me to Exodus for a second, and let me just explain how this works. You go back to Exodus chapter 4. 
You go back to Exodus chapter 4, and you look at verses 22 and 23. It says there, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, uh, I'm sorry, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, So what we see is that the people now are a corporate Israel. It's not just a guy, it's a people. And, and they're not just uh, Israel, they are also a corporate Adam. That's why in the beginning of Exodus, in chapter 1, it says, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. They did what Adam was told to do. This is a corporate Adam, this is a corporate Israel, this is the Son of God. Now, when Jesus, then, is called the Son of God, what, what we are being told by the apostles is that he is the true Israel. Now, behold, the true Son has come. The true Son that was promised to Adam, the true Israel, the true people, right? All of this stuff, that's why the book of Matthew goes on, and it, and it gives you the life of Jesus in exactly the order of Moses' books, That's what we talked about before. He is the Son of God. He is Israel. All of these things that are true of Israel are now true of Jesus. But but it's, it's greater than that. He's not just the Son of God, as Psalm 2 tells us. He also inherits a throne. He inherits a throne. This is why the title of Son is translated or transferred from the people of God back to a person. And this is what happens over and over again. It goes from a guy to a people to a guy to people to a guy. Because who, who, who is the lineage of David? Is it just David or is it a whole bunch of people? Okay, well, we, we have all these types and shadows. We have all this definition adding on top of definition. So if we go to 2 Samuel, don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole book again. <laughs> it's important to understand that Israel was established as a kingdom and their king was God. They had no earthly king. They were a, king without a, they were a kingdom without a land and without an earthly king. Right? They, they were a kingdom before they had either land or a king. So later, when David is made the king, what he's given is a throne over a kingdom that already exists. That's what we read in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Verse, oh, I've written so much on this, I can't even read it. Verses 13 to 16. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. So he's saying, now, not only is the Son of God a people, the Son of God is this man David, and and he is my son, and he will rule over my people. And his house will stand forever. His throne will stand forever. And then when you get to Luke chapter 1, the angel says that, the, that all of that now is inherited by Jesus. All the promises are inherited by Jesus. All the definitions are inherited by Jesus. Jesus becomes the thing that Israel has been waiting for ever since the, the kingdoms of Israel fell. And they all went into exile, and they all went into darkness. And all the Old Testament prophets are like, when is this going to end? And when is the sun going to rise? And when is David coming back? And the angel tells Mary, a 15-year-old virgin, behold, in your womb, 
is the son we've been waiting for. We come to find out the Elijah is already prepared. He's already coming into the world. And, and these people are receiving these things, and they can hardly understand what they're being told. And isn't that true of you? Right? When, when God restores the fortunes of Israel, we are like those who dream. We can hardly believe it, not because we lack faith, but it seems almost too glorious and good. Just as Mary staggered by what she was told, I, when I think about these things, and I hope when you think about these things, it's staggering. What do you mean, me, little old me, folding my laundry and cooking my pancakes, trying to teach these obstinate children how to read? What do you mean that I've inherited a kingdom that goes all the way back to Adam? And there you are, just like Mary. What do you mean that these things have come upon us now? Right? You go, you go to work. You go to the bathroom when your boss tells you. You go to work when your boss tells you. You go home when your boss tells you. You have to ask for a day off. And, and, you, and then I'm sitting here on a Sunday morning trying to convince you that you are kings that will inherit the cosmos. I understand it's a little hard to believe. But, but believing it is how it comes true, and believing it is what makes us his chosen possession. He loves us, and he wants us to understand, right? Don't look at your life. Look at him. Who is he? And because of who he is, who are you? Now, I didn't explain this before when I did the Samuel series, but I'm going to now because there is this mysterious verse, and it's, I, I actually set it aside, waiting to figure it out, and I think I figured it out, and here we go. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, down in verse 19, at one point, David, who's talking about these things, he says, and yet this, was, yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So, right, just as Mary is having a hard time believing it, David is like, this, you, you said that you made this promise and you made it seem like you were just telling me that tomorrow we're having toast for breakfast. You're telling me that I'm going to have this kingdom that goes on forever, and you're just like, oh yeah, by the way, your house will stand forever. And then David says, this will be instruction for the world. But that word is actually Torah. This will be the Torah of the world. Well, what will be? His house? His throne? And, and I believe it's his throne. I believe it's the man who sits upon it. I think this is how we come to understand that, that, the, that the law of Moses is superseded by the law of Christ. Right? The throne itself will become the law. David is supposed to write down the law. That's what Deuteronomy 17 says. Make a copy, read it every day, memorize it, submit yourself to it. Jesus comes, completely submits himself to the law in every conceivable way, fulfills every jot and tittle of it, and then he himself becomes the law. His throne is the Torah of the world. Because when, when people are in this world, what is the ethical situation? Right? We understand there's the law of Moses, but it's you either love God and you love your neighbor like Jesus did, and, and that's our ethical standard now. He's become the standard himself. In John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the standard now. The standard is what did I do for you? How did I forgive you? How did I show you mercy? How did I accept you? How did I overlook your faults? How, right? What grace did I give you? That is now the standard for your behavior. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
This is what David saw, even though he, right? He, he's saying this, this throne that you're giving me that seems like nothing to you, God, is now going to be the law of the world. Now, did he know when that was going to happen? How that was going to happen? No, but he recognizes what God is doing in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's establishing a rule not over a people, an ethnic people. He's establishing a rule, a law, a commandment, a covenant, a community over the whole world. Ephesians 5.2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's how we're supposed to walk. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Galatians 6.2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There it is. This throne, the one that sits above us, the one that we worship at, the one that we look to, is the Torah of the whole world. And so if you're going to come to me and you're going to tell me that that Torah actually is just a personal thing, I'm going to say, (laughs) no, this is the law of the world. This is the law of the world. Now, how do we work that out? Let's sit down and let's work that out. But I'm not going to be told that this is a private affair. Now, if you turn to Daniel chapter, I'm not going to turn there now. I'm telling you this so you can look it up later because I'm running out of time. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. But we're going to move on now to this fact that he's reigning over the house of Jacob. Okay, now the house of Jacob originally was a transitional phrase in, to reference the people of God. Because you had Jacob who became Israel, and then you've got this household that belongs to him. And, and, and for a while, they weren't called Israel. They were called the household of Jacob. Genesis 46, 27. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So the people of God are referred to as the household of Jacob. But then by the time you get to Exodus 19, it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. See, so he's connecting the two things. The household of Jacob is now Israel. By the time you get to Isaiah, chapter 48, he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. Right? So it became this reference for the people of God, Israel. And, and so this is the throne that Jesus accepts. He now accepts the throne over the household of Jacob. He is now the king of Israel. And this kingdom, we are told... in both time and terrain, is measureless. That If you go all the way back to Luke, let's just refresh our memories here. He says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So in time and terrain, there's no end to this kingdom. It's not an ethnic group. It's not, right? And and ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you right now, God does not care any more about a stretch of land in Palestine than he cares about Taiwan. If Jesus were here with us now, he's not like, you know what? I love everything, but I love them more. There's this stretch of land that really, if you want to be holy, that's where you have to go. You have to make a pilgrimage. There's this, the place where I walked is now the holiest place. No, one place is the same to him because it's all his, right? You don't love your ch- one child more than another child. All the kingdoms of the earth are God's, and he doesn't love one kingdom more than he loves any other kingdom. So he likes 
the tundra in Canada just as much as he likes is the land that is now known as Israel. Okay? He, he likes Taiwan. He likes the jungle in South America. He loves Seattle. If he's going to favor anything, it's going to be, of course, here because it's the most beautiful place in the world. But there, there is no end to his kingdom. And, and this is what we want to make him a small god of a small people of a small place. And he's like, no, right? What's he arguing in John 4? It doesn't matter where you worship. It no longer matters. Well, I'm sorry, isn't one place holier than another? Nope. That's why we can meet in something that used to be a goodwill, right? I mean, in the 14th century, this would be illegal because the, the, the bishops would come in here and be like, why are you worshiping the glorious God in this ugly place? But we've come to understand it doesn't matter where we're standing. Now, I understand how people get about this. I, I know... I, I, there's a corner in Philadelphia I really wanted to visit, and nobody understood why, but it was, it was John, uh, John Adams and Jefferson and had this big argument, and they said goodbye on this corner, and that was the last time they spoke to one another for decades. And I was like, I would like to just go stand there. And my mom is like, who cares? Right? And, and, and the same thing, my poor wife, I dragged her all over Dublin so that I could see in various places that the NRI members had been executed. And I'm like, look, there's a plaque on the wall. She's like, could we go to the gardens, please? Right? We, we get sentimental about these things. And, and even more so when it's my father, he's been to Jerusalem. And he, and he said, yeah, it's funny. He's there, and there's all this commercialism. And there, he's standing in this place. They say this is where Jesus fell when he was carrying the cross. And everybody walks on in the tour. And the, the guy giving the tour says, actually, it was about like 45 feet below us here because, you know, the city doesn't look the same. Actually, it was probably over there where that building is. And my dad was like, okay, you know, this isn't what I thought it was. And, and what we have to understand about Jesus is he is not the king of a small people and he's not the king of a small place. In terrain and time, it is endless. And I'm just going to, I'm going to read you a bunch of verses. Okay, that's what we're here to do. Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, nor shall it be left to another people. Hmm. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1, 8. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam's God is your God. The one that Moses went to the tent of meeting with and looked upon face to face, like a friend looks upon the face of a friend, is the God you're speaking to when you kneel down in prayer. It doesn't matter if it's your kitchen table. It doesn't matter if it's the bathroom. 
right? I remember recently I caught myself, my son needed to pray privately, and you can imagine in my house it's hard to find. And he was like, well, I'll just go into the bathroom here and pray in here. And I was like, oh, you can't pray to God in the bathroom. And then I was like, you go on in there, son. You pray to him. Because every place is like another when he is there. He is the king of the whole earth. And, and if you believe in him, he is your king, and you are a member of his kingdom. You don't need saints to as intermediaries. You don't need priests as intermediaries. You don't need me and Joel and Jared or deacons to be intermediaries. You go directly to his throne. You have complete access, and everywhere you are, he is. And your life matters because you're, you are a citizen in his kingdom. Right? And, and <laughs> this is a classic argument. Go home and enjoy this. If a Christian writes a book, is it a, is it a Christian book because he writes it? Is it automatically a Christian book because a Christian wrote it? Okay, you think on that, okay? Now, if, if everything you do, as, if you're a priest in this kingdom, is everything you do priestly work? Is everything you do the work of kings and queens? Yes, <laughs> yes, because you're doing it. This is why Paul says that we sanctify things, we make them holy with our thanksgiving. This is why he says to offer your life on the altar in Romans chapter 12. We are priests, we are kings, we are ruling and reigning, because they can do whatever they want with your punch card, they can do whatever they want with your lunch hour, they can move it an hour ahead or an hour behind, but when you're forgiving sins, you are binding and loosing things in heaven. You have the powers of the, kings of the kingdom now because you are the church. It is your kingdom because it's his kingdom. And so they can do whatever they want to you, but what you're doing has eternal consequences. Ladies, those children that you're raising are eternal souls. They will go on living forever. Right? What, what we are talking about when we are doing all of the things that we do as Christians is we're talking about eternal truths, things that will last forever because of who we are, because of who he is. Don't let anyone, right, a Schofield study Bible or anything else, tell you that you are not the people of God, that this kingdom will be taken from you, that this kingdom can be destroyed, that this kingdom can be overcome because there's nothing that overcomes it. There's no end to it. There's not an expiration date. It's not as if God is going to say, well, that was a good try. Let's start over. He's never done that. He goes on and he goes on and he goes on, expanding, making more disciples, making more children, making more families in his household, taking over more lands. It only grows. It doesn't get smaller. (laughs) At some point, though, and here's another one that you can take home. What is the difference between left-handed and right-handed power? Because you're sitting there and you're like, Mike, Mike, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, sickness, death. There's all kinds of things that make it, that make it look like his kingdom isn't growing because what we are expecting is right-handed power, always. Right-handed power is about, over, is about guns. Right-handed power is about jackbooted thugs. Right-handed power is about you're going to believe in Allah or we're going to chop your head off. Left-handed power is Jesus on a cross, overcoming everything by suffering and dying. And remember what I told you. How, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How does it spread? So there's nothing incongruous about your life and what Christ has promised to you. There's nothing incongruous about what you're suffering. There's nothing incongruous about what you're, what you're hoping to see happen that isn't happening. 
There's nothing incongruous about what you're dealing with and his promises to you and who he is and therefore who you are. And, and we need to be reminded of this constantly. Our king is Jesus. He is the king of the cosmos, and we in him will inherit those cosmos. And so whatever you're struggling with, look to him, put your faith in him, bow down to him, talk to him, pray to him. Wherever you are, he is there, and he is yours, and you are his. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would have the boldness of the apostles, Lord, that we would have the faith of Christ, that we would, that, that we would know in our hearts that his spirit is the spirit that is within us, that unites us to you. We are one with you. We are your people, and you are our God. And I pray, God, that we would go in that strength and in that joy, Lord, and serve you with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. In the name of Jesus, amen.